Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello, Phil. Hello, Peter. Good. So today we're going to be talking about Hellraiser Inferno, mm. which is number five, film number five, but with no number in the title. It's just called Hellraiser Inferno. And mm. It was made in the year 2000. Wow. Yeah. The new millennium. Futuristic. And one thing I do want to say, especially for this one, which we haven't mentioned for a couple of podcasts, is there will be spoilers. If you haven't seen this film, we are going to spoil it quite heavily in the case of this film. So if you haven't seen it, do watch it before you listen to this. Now, this film has quite a mixed reception in fandom, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I've sort of looked around online and seems to have some people completely sort of hating it some people really loving it Mm. but I think the overwhelming feeling is just kind of a bit of oh yeah okay oh that one oh yeah Uh, yeah yeah people aren't in general aren't quite as strongly against it as they are for some of the others like Bloodline and some of the later ones it's kind of people just sort of see this one as a bit meh yeah which is kind of the way that I see it really I think Mm mhm it's another one that you sort of think, well, a lot of good ideas and, again, a lot of missed opportunities. But I didn't hate it. No. I just didn't really love it. Well, I quite like this one, I've got to say. Mm. I wouldn't say it's one of my favourites, but it's certainly not the worst. No. In fact, when we've done them all, maybe we'll put them into order of preference, both of us, <laughs> see which ones we like best. But for me, this has a lot of quite strong things in it. Yeah, definitely. There's there's some really good scenes, some really good sort of uh, cinematography and um, direction, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And some not too bad acting. I uh, think the acting's great in this one. Yeah, it's all it's all right for me, yeah. And some really good ideas, but I kind of found myself again sort of watching this film and really sort of thinking in my head the film that I wanted it to be rather than the film that was actually playing out in front of me. Yeah. there are Yeah, there are some bits where you sort of think, Oh, oh dear. So let's crack straight on then. The film is all about the character Joseph Thorne, who's played by Craig Sheffer, who you might recognise from a little Clive Barker movie called Nightbreed, Mm. which came out about ten years before Hellraiser Inferno. But he's still looking good, old Craig. Well, yeah, he's looking... Like something. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he does some amazing eyebrow acting in this film, I think. He does. He does some very good, I'm a bad man, but I've got a heart of gold acting. Mm. He's kind of set up at the beginning, which I think is really heavy handed, uh, set up as being a bit of a bit of a genius, a bit of a really sort of intelligent yeah, kind of puzzle solver, puzzle solver, playing chess at high speed and taking his money and then going solving crimes. And and you meet his partner and the first thing his partner says is a little riddle for him to solve and he gets it straight away and you're like, oh, okay. Which is the most ridiculous riddle ever. <laughs> well, tell me another word for slaughterhouse. Abattoir. Wow, you're good. <laughs> it's not, not, not that difficult, I wouldn't have thought, but no. hey. And the partner is played by uh, Nicholas... Totoro, who is John Totoro's brother, oh. which is quite good fun. His character is called Tony Nanonan. Nanonan, which is purely so that Thorn can give him a riddle of what is your surname. It's a palindrome. What's that? Oh, it's the same spelt backwards as forwards. 
Yeah. Because no one would have the actual surname Nanonan. Nanonan. <laughs> and if you if that was your surname, I'm sure someone would have mentioned that to you before. Yeah, you now, would have realised that when you were a kid <laughs> at some point anyway. But hey. But hey, there we are. So the main character then, Joe Joseph Thorne, the detective, he's a flawed character. We find it from the very beginning. He takes drugs, bad for a cop. Mm-hmm. And he sleeps with prostitutes, mm-hmm. which is also not very good if you're a policeman. No, he's got a wife and kid. Exactly. Wife, wife and daughter. And daughter. And he has a, a snitch who works in an ice cream van who he takes drugs from. And it's a very odd character, this snitch character, the ice cream seller. Because he gives it, there's that line where he says, talks about a prostitute he was with and she was over 18, but too old for you. Yeah, it's kind and of... he's like, oh of... yeah quite strongly implied that he's a paedophile or yeah. something like that which is um which is odd whoa. because joseph thorne is like all about saving kids for the whole film yeah and if he was going to save kids wouldn't he want to get rid of paedophiles maybe mm, well yeah so there we go anyway. anyway anyway that's just that's one of the many questions that this film raises in its plot but we'll come to that later on so we've met thorne and the first thing we find out that's anything to do with Hellraiser is a crime scene right at the beginning where someone has been pulled apart and it turns out he knew him. Mm. Ooh. And then there's a puzzle box, which is sort of part of a candlestick. Yeah. Which is a bit odd as well. Well, isn't the candle sitting on top of the puzzle box? The candle is on top of the puzzle box, yeah. yeah. So who put that candle there? Because what's unusual about that candle? Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. The candle has... A child's finger in it. Ah, oh. Whoa. And the killer of this movie, we discover, likes to put a, the finger of a child in or around the body of the victim. So every time there's a murder, you find a child's little finger. And they discover with forensics that the child is still alive. Yeah, so that's the redeeming part of this kind of quite nasty character of Joe Thorne, that he instantly sort of decides he's going to find this child and yeah. save the child. Yeah. Ignoring all the kids that the paedophile fiddles with. He's yeah, going to go that. for this one. Forget that. There's one other that he's in, that's very important. Mm. Who's having his fingers cut off. So, yeah. he, he's worth saving. So the basic plot of the film, I mean, it is a simple plot, isn't it? It, it is very simple, It's just a very really. simple kind of murder mystery. Um, Thorne's looking for this killer. Mm-hmm. Who's killing people? Uh, it seems to be people that are connected to Thorn. Yep, that was the first character they find. Then the prostitute that he was with gets killed, and then his snitch, the ice cream paedophile snitch, drug dealer chap, gets killed as well. Mm. And at this point, when the drug dealer fella gets killed, we find out who the killer is, sort of, on a video. It's a weird kind of cenobite sort of creature, a weird cenobitic flesh head, no eyes. And a big long black tongue. Yeah, yeah. So we see that on the video. But before that, we've seen some Cenobites in a dream. Oh yes, in fact, we've skipped ahead quite a big way because Thorne takes the box from the crime scene and just after he slept with the prostitute, he ends up opening the box. Mm. Again, without seeming to really do anything to it. it He doesn't actually really open it. He just does that sort of circular thumb movement on the top of the box and then the rest of it is pretty much the box opening itself. And it, it always makes me laugh because they, they do go to great efforts, you know, to sort of set up characters who are puzzle solvers, mm. who are 
people who are really good at puzzles like they did in the second film and in this one and you know the toy maker making this complicated box and yeah. stuff and the thing just it's like a kinder egg it just falls <laughs> open at the drop of a hat although they do imply in the second one that tiffany does actually takes her a while to solve it doesn't it i mean she actually works out how to open it i guess so but it's not really shown in the in the films <laughs> you just show her kind of doing the round the round, <laughs> round thumb yeah. thing. the round the round the thumb thing <laughs> That's what Pinhead used to play as a child. <laughs> oh, I just mentioned Pinhead then. Oh. But hang on a moment, we haven't mentioned him yet. Surely he's a big part of this film, Phil? Well, no. No. No, he's not. Pinhead it. is barely in the film, which is a reason why a lot of fans don't like it and they complain, because he's hardly in it. But when he is in it, I think he just, if you'll forgive the pun, sticks out like a sore thumb. He sticks out like a sore nail. He just he just doesn't fit in this film. Because it's really, for me, it's kind of not really a Hellraiser film. You know, no, it's, it's a weird, really... it's a supernatural cop detective film noir, sort of, really. Hmm. And when Pinhead does pop up in this dream, basically there's this dream, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. he opens the box and then nothing happens. And then he has a weird dream in which he meets four Cenobites, the last one being Pinhead. Very briefly, opens the door, Pinhead's there for about three seconds, and then he rips his face apart, and that's it. Yeah. But what about the other Cenobites? Yeah, we've got some more new Cenobites for you. We've got the Wire Twins, mm. who are two lady Cenobites who are twins, and they've got wires sticking from their chins down to their Chests. shoulders, or his <laughs> chest, and they are quite sexual beings. Mm, they they have a the... weird little sexual moment with Thorn where they put their hands inside his chest. Yeah, which yeah. I think is good. That bit's great, yeah. And they've got these big long black tongues, big CGI tongues, which is actually done quite well, I think. It's quite understated CGI. Yeah. No, and, it's and it's good. sort of dark. And if it was brightly lit and it was like, hey, look at this, it would have looked really bad. But that's, pre- that's pretty well done, I think. Yeah, I think it's I think it's quite good this bit because they're kind of you know just the the great moment where they kind of just slip their hands underneath his skin. Yeah, and then they're kind of rubbing his chest, and, mm-hmm. and he know, starts that's, he's that's a bit good. freaked out to start with, and then he starts really enjoying it. Yeah, that this is Hellraiser. Exactly, this, this is, Hellraiser. is really Hellraiser. I'm liking that. And then the the other one we've not mentioned yet, who's the only other Cenobite we meet, we meet in this film, is a Chatterer torso Cenobite. Mm. So he's a he's sort of a Chatterer head. He's got arms, and then he's got half a torso, and then he just stops. Yeah. And he just walks around on his hands. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty freaky as well. That's pretty good. He's, he's not... He isn't Chatterer. It's got different facial makeup than Chatterer from the first two films. Well, this one, the Chatterer thing and the two twins, I think, have a very clean look. They, they look like Cenobites, but their skin is really white and pale. Yeah. And they, they kind of... They look different. Somehow they don't look as grungy as the other Cenobites. I think no, they personally. don't. They look very clean and and kind of precise looking. Yeah, they are quite specific, aren't they? They're quite stylized. Mm. And also, when you see Pinhead at this moment, he looks a bit strange as well. And we'll get to his makeup later on. He's the Pinhead makeup looks a bit different in this film. It is. Now let's talk about it now. Why not? Pinhead. The Pinhead makeup is it's the same special effects guy that did Bloodline, so it should look the same. But there's something about it. That doesn't quite... I mean, he's very blue to start with, and that's to do with the lighting as well. It's not just the makeup. There's a couple of scenes where he's there, and there's lots of blue lighting, and everyone else is blue as well, so he is very blue. But there's lots of close-ups on his face, and he looks 
more like you said, he's got sort of frost on his face. Well, he's got first, lots of little sort of um, sort of skin pore marks. Yeah, at first, because especially because he's in a scene with snow, I thought it was like frost crystals on his face, which yeah. I thought was cool. But then when you see the close-ups later on, it does look like they've just tried to make him have pores. Mm. But it just looks like loads of little tiny holes, sort of. Yeah. Hard now, this is nitpicky, we know, but... It's quite important. He's supposed to, he's got to look the same. Yeah, it's definitely different, and it does kind of look like they've sort of went, hmm, maybe we should just subtly try and sort of make the makeup look a, a little bit better. But they kind mm. of changed it quite a lot. Yeah. Hellraiser Podcast at hotmail.co.uk. We have eternity to know your feedback. All right, so we'll move on. So we've got these murders and he gets a videotape of the faceless killer and he's trying to work out who it is and then he hears tell of a character called the engineer who keen hellraiser fans will remember from the first film as being a quite scarily designed but ultimately rubbery creature yeah yeah we weren't massive fans of the engineer were we and it's not he's not the same as that in this film let's just say that now it's just the name, isn't it, really, it I is. think? The engineer in this film turns out to be Pinhead, really, doesn't it? And he says that's as, as good a name as any. Yeah, I mean, they kind of even leave it open. I they don't do. Know. Yeah, no, they do. But he says, you're the engineer, and he says, that's as good a name as any. Yeah, so and you could take it that way, or not. You could, because, I mean, he's the engineer from the first film, the guardian of hell, or whatever he is. Pinhead would know about him. And if he is called the engineer, then he wouldn't really call name himself after that creature, would he? Mm. Or maybe they just picked a name for the script. I think, yeah. I mean, I think if I was writing this script and I was sort of looking for a cool name, and you've already had this engineer thing, you know, the engineer. And he's never mentioned. Good. He's never mentioned as the engineer in the film. Exactly. So they've just taken that, I think, and just thought that sounds good. Yeah. All right. Good. So we'll move on. And that's it, really, in terms of the main plot. He's trying to find out who the engineer is so he can find the killer. He thinks the engineer is the killer, and he's trying to find this little child before it gets killed. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty basic. And everyone around him keeps getting killed. We had the first guy that he knew. We've got the prostitute and the snitch character. Then his partner gets killed. And then finally his wife and daughter get killed, chained mm. up to the... Pillar, the Hellraiser pillar. Yeah, in a room full of snow, and they kind of die of exposure. Yeah, which is really weird. And then he breaks off his daughter's arm. By accident. By accident, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And then they break up into lots of little pieces and they collapse. Mm hmm. In some CGI fun. Mm. So essentially, I mean, we've been jumping all over here in the story. We have, yeah. and I think that's because, although it's a simple story, it's it's kind of hard to sort of collate your, what you think about it, I guess, when you've seen it, you know. I don't know. It, no, it is. Yeah, you're right. A lot of the scenes are very samey, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of people talking to each other, investigating things, moving forwards uh, in that way. And, yeah, you know, the the whole film is kind of sort of just chugs along for me. It doesn't really... There's no parts of the story where I'm like, wow, the story's taken a real detour here and we've gone down here. You know, it's just a kind of slow thing where he's sort of descending into madness and he seems to be losing it. He yeah, that's the other seeing thing we haven't things. mentioned. He's seeing, he's seeing weird things. He's hallucinating. 
and there's some weird stuff going on in the background. Mm. So he's, you know, I, I guess they're trying to make it so that you think that you as the viewer think that as it's going on, maybe he is doing the murders or maybe he is losing his mind and it's not real. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And his partner, Tony Nanonan, mm-hmm. he does suspect him as being the killer. Yeah, and you would because... Yeah, because he's, he's really weird. He, he's acting really strange and he looks quite evil most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> As you said, he's, he, he does a bit of jp monroe acting he certainly does he's you know this guy he's he's just sort of has a little look at you and he looks like he's going to kill you you know he's uh really gone for the super evil kind of face a lot in the yeah film. I yeah don't he is i don't know how else to describe it <laughs> but no it's a good point we've dived straight into this conversation and we've just gone all over the place because there's no real specific plot really to talk through no it's just a kind of series of events and it is very kind of dreamlike which again is why I can't really grasp onto each bit of it because mm. it's sort of strange things are happening. And in a weird way, I'd kind of like more strange things to happen in it. Yeah, there are some really good little moments mm. of really weird stuff and there should be more of those. Absolutely. I mean, this is the film that I wanted to see. It, you know, a, a, a cop investigating the underside of the city that he didn't know about, where people are buying and selling this box, people are being torn apart, people are using it, you know, in cult Mm. rituals, people, you know, strange clubs exist where people are doing weird things, you know. I mean, that would have been absolutely amazing. And they just scrape the surface of that idea throughout this film, Mm -hmm. but they don't get into it. I mean, imagine if you were in some sort of, you know, he was in some sort of sex club and then he just saw out the corner of his eye someone just pushing their hand underneath someone's skin of their chest, you know. Things like that, you know, maybe even kind of a bit more sort of David Lynchy type stuff. Like the, the scene where he goes to the club with the cowboys and they're all playing cards. That's weird. That's really weird, but I really like that scene mm-hmm. in a way because I'm not sure what's going on, but it's it's it looks good and it's interesting. Yeah, let's talk about that for a moment, that scene. Yeah. He's searching for the engineer and he ends up in this bar and everyone in it is a cowboy in a cowboy hat. <laughs> and he meets the character he's looking for, who is called Mr. Parmaggi, I think. And he turns out to be someone who works for the engineer with his two henchmen who are... Well, they're billed as Asian Cowboy Asian, 1 and Asian, Asian cowboy. cowboy 2. They're sort of martial arts cowboys. Yeah, and they just kick kick him to kick pieces, the don't they? the crap out of Thorn. Out of Thorn, they just go mental on him and, and kick him. And then Parmaggi says, this is all a game. The engineer's playing a game with you. And yeah. Thorn says, I'm going to find that kid. And Parmaggi says, well, I think that's the object of the game. Yeah, which I think the writers or maybe the, the filmmakers thought was a really interesting part of the scene where he's sort of you know he's um thorn is going i want to find this child i want to find this child and then in this scene the guy goes no he wants you to find the child yeah but it doesn't really come across as this great revelation in the film really because by that point my attention is sort of dipping a little and you're too busy going what are those cowboys doing yeah (laughs) and i just think that that's the thing the film doesn't really know what it wants to be if it wants to be a Hellraiser film or a police procedural film or a kind of strange, twisted look at the underside of a city or, you know, it, it could be all of these things, but it sort of doesn't really settle on one, for me. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. When you were, when you said David Lynch, I thought you were going to talk about the hospital. Well, sequence. exactly. 
which is great. He goes to visit his parents in hospital because he's got a... His wife gets a phone message from his mother saying the engineer has been to visit, so he goes and finds her. And then it all goes really weird at the hospital, and there's one old man in a wheelchair whose face has been stretched yeah and he's but he's laughing like a child there's a child's laughter coming out of his mouth and he's brilliant yeah i well, mean that's more cool, stuff like that that's cool and uh, the thing is that is cool but in this film it almost isn't cool because it doesn't totally fit it doesn't totally fit. and also it makes you think the filmmakers had these ideas why didn't they use more things like this yeah and the film doesn't to, to me look cheap you know, I'm, I know they didn't really have that much money to do no, it. No, they didn't. But, but I think what they put up on the screen looks looks good. And, you know, I think it looks it, I okay. think it looks better than Bloodline. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that. Because, you know, we, last podcast we talked about Bloodline looking a bit like a TV movie. Mm. And this one does at least look like a film. It had a pretty small budget, but it does at least look like a movie. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, really, because this was the first straight-to-DVD release in in america or straight to video and bloodline did get a cinematic release in the states Mm. i think in a weird way you know they should be applauded for i think at this point the people in control of the money of hellraiser basically were going okay okay you guys go with it (laughs) go with your creative impulses and i think unfortunately the people who made the film didn't go far enough and so that's why the film kind of falls between two things. It doesn't... Yeah. doesn't... It's not as arty and creative as it could be. Mm-hmm. But it's also not a standard genre film. No, it's not. I think in the past, Doug Bradley has mentioned the fact he thought this was a standalone script that was then made into a Hellraiser film. Mm. But I don't know if there's actually any evidence that that's true. I think... Well, as far as I'm aware, the guys who wrote it did actually pitch it as a Hellraiser film to Dimension Films and then were then given the green light to write the script and then one of them ended up directing it. I mean, if, um, I could believe that it was true. I, I mean, could. From what you see in the, on the film. Yeah. But... And that's definitely the case of films 7 and 8, which we'll be getting to. They were both just random horror scripts that were then made into Hellraiser films just for the, the hell of it. But we'll get to those later. Mm. But it could have been the case for this one. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. It is not hands that call us. It is computers or iPhones or anything else you might be using to listen to this. I don't know how this bloody thing works. And then we get to the big reveal at the end. Super spoiler twist. Yeah, this is your last chance if you haven't watched the film yet. This is your last spoiler warning. Still with us? Okay, let's go. Right, turns out, just after he slept with the prostitute, he opened the box, and from then on, nothing is real. He's in hell. He's in hell. So he eventually discovers that... Well, we'll come back to that idea in a minute. But he discovers that Pinhead, the engineer, has been sort of orchestrating things in the form of a doctor, a psychiatrist. So we've got this strange psychiatrist character who then, at the end, spouts pins and becomes Pinhead. Mm. And so you could argue that Pinhead was in the film a lot more, but just pretending to be this psychiatrist. Mm. But that's not good enough for a lot of fans. <laughs> it's not good enough for me. Especially when they splash Pinhead all over the front of the DVD and posters and... 
And that's the problem as well, isn't it? I mean, that's when, you know, the marketing department gets involved. Mm. And they're nothing to do with the people who make the film, I would presume, in most cases. Yeah. And this film, as I was watching it, I was looking at the DVD box cover. And I just thought, if this film had the cover, a kind of noirish detective style cover, kind of like sort of Sin City looking, you know, like it sort of showed a black sort of city with shadows. But it could have like a a full length pinhead in the background, sort of in one of the corners. Yeah, you could have shown the the other Cenobites looking out of the shadows and stuff. Or a box somewhere just to make it look like Hellraiser. But no, the front of the DVD, well, the one we've got anyway here, which is the Region 2 UK release, is just a close up of Pinhead's face bathed in an orange light. That's it. Absolutely. And I would say, I don't know, is that the... Yeah, that is the makeup from this one. Yeah, is it? I don't know. (laughs) Help us out, fans. Yeah, I'm not even sure. We're looking at it now, and it might not even be the makeup from this film. It could be a picture from a different film. Mm. But anyway, the point is, the main... That's the the whole front of the DVD. Yeah. So it's saying, hello, everyone, there's a new Hellraiser film, and it's about Pinhead. Why don't you buy it? And you buy it. And if you buy it for that reason, you'll be disappointed. There's no two ways about it. If you're buying a, a pinhead film, you will be disappointed with this. Absolutely. But they could have made it that, that, that this was going to be a continuing series of Hellraiser films that, that, that weren't all to do with the Cenobites. Well, that, I think that was the idea. And that, exactly. is, that is what happens from now on with the films. They are standalone films. But if it was marketed as a detective story set in the Hellraiser world, then I think a lot less people would be angry about it. Yeah, I mean, I can see the cover in my head, and I think that would be kind of cool. And it mm. would be real, like, okay, the series is going off in a different different way now, you know, you might not like that, but this is the way it is. Whereas this is just trying to trick you, isn't it? It's just trying to trick yeah. you. Into yeah, going, it is. It, well, it it's is, Hellraiser. yeah. It's Hellraiser. It's what you know and love. Pinhead. Pinhead. <laughs> Buy it. And it, I mean, it really is a big one, because he's not just in it not that much. I mean, he's in it for like 30 seconds or something. Yeah, I think Doug Bradley was only needed on set for three days. He did all of his bits in three days and went home again. Mm. So, we've had this revelation that he's in hell. Yes, but we haven't yet. Let's just, before we find out that he he has been in hell for pretty much the whole film, we discover that the faceless killer, well, he meets the faceless killer, and it pulls off its face, and it's him inside. It's him. And the child, we discover... The child whose fingers were being cut off is him when he was a kid. Him. So, in effect, his current life is killing his spirit and his soul. And that's what they're saying. That's what Pinhead says, isn't it? That's what it? Pinhead says, yeah. And this is what this is what I've got a problem with. So he's he's murdering his own innocence by all the things that he does now. This bad man that he's become. And yeah, go on. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, this is really just corrupting the whole thing of what Hellraiser is for me in that Pinhead is not a moral guardian. (laughs) He's not saying because you take drugs and sleep with prostitutes and you never visit your mum and dad at the old people's home, you know, that's why you're in hell. That's what he's saying in this film. Yeah, he does. And, And that to me is just ludicrous because the one thing that I remember thinking about the first film is that, you know, the first film is all about human drama, human mm. relationships. And the Cenobites are just straight to the point. They don't, they're not interested in that. They're not interested in why you want to have sex with this person or that person. They're no. just interested in what they do. You open the box, now you must come with us. Yeah, and, and the pain-pleasure thing. Whereas in this film, you know, Pinhead's engineered 
um, this huge sort of scenario that keeps playing over and over again that he's in purely to make him see the error of his ways or to yeah, well, and what can he do then to be punished I mean yeah. it's just it just it's really not I mean you know it's, it's in effect more like what the Christian idea of hell where you're just punished for eternity for your crimes or your sins whereas the cenobitic hell really that we've met before like Frank's hell was a personal just a, a room in you know Leviathan's big old hell with its corridors sort of implying everyone gets their own room and that room is tailored for them like for him it was women always promising and never giving up you know the mm. but yeah. in this one it's they've created this whole world for him yeah I mean they're, they're in essence saying to us that there's there's whole scenes where he's talking to his therapist and the therapist is going, hmm, well, there was a case a few years ago. And that's Pinhead pretending? Is he yeah. acting? Is he, yeah. He's, and then when... You Just know, for fun. For, is, he not, is he not busy? Does he not have other things to do? You know, I don't know. I mean, it could, because it has been mentioned in the other films before, you know, that they would take, you know, they would do stuff to you for forever, mm. you know, and you would be in this hell and it would be... And they would take their time to have fun with you, I think was suggested in the first one. You know, we have you know, eternity yeah. to know your flesh and do all this stuff to you. Yeah. But not like this. What? Not like some kind of weird family drama. And also, the whole point of the Cenobites originally was pleasure and pain indivisible. Mm. Now, I don't know what pleasure Thorne is getting out of any of this. No. He's just being punished for being a bad man. He is, yeah. And it, th- that's... That's the bit where you just kind of like, what? Where they sort of go, oh, your wife and child are dead because you weren't, you never came home. And you, you took those drugs, didn't you? You took those drugs and, oh dear. Oh, you had you're... sex with that prostitute, so we're going to shatter man. your wife and child. <laughs> yeah, so that's not good for me. <laughs> no, I do agree with you there. I do agree. That that doesn't seem to make sense. And in, in some ways it would be better if this was just a supernatural cop film nothing to do with Hellraiser there's just again you know there's just little flashes of, of cool stuff all the way through like when he goes to the uh, tattoo parlour and meets the guy and yeah. he's sort of like you know well, I just sell the box you know yeah, he didn't have enough money and he's like he had loads of money and he's like you didn't have enough for this yeah. and, you know, there's sort of that could have been a great film I think where you, you're yeah, sort of there finding is this, this under- weird so there is this network. underground world let's talk about the box in this film then there is this underground world this, this film's saying where people find out about the box and they can go to middlemen, as it were, and buy the box from them. Hang on, first of all, can we talk about this as in, this is what the film says is is happening in the world, because this is part of the bit where he's in his hell. So this might all be nonsense. This could all be created for Thorne's hell. It might not actually be what actually happens in the real world. Well, there you go. That (laughs) that is an interesting point, because that is boring, isn't it? It, it, what we're well, saying is that if it, well I think it is what what I'm saying is if it was real if he wasn't in hell yeah no I, yeah, I agree if the whole, yeah. then that's great whereas as it is when you're just having a discussion about the film as soon as you've got past that scene where he opens the box in the bathroom from then on nothing is real and so it's it's not in the real world anymore yeah so and so, so you can't really have a proper discussion about what the filmmakers are saying happens in the real world in this version of the story because this is all kind of in his head or in his version of hell so there's not much point in us having that conversation really is there i mean it's some interesting stuff in it but in effect you can't really talk about the canon of the films in regards to this one because nothing is real 
the podcast. You downloaded it, we came. Okay, so let's just move on to talk about the film as a viewing experience. Mm-hmm. I think we mentioned earlier on that it looks good and it is well made. I think I'll stand by that. I think it is well made. It looks good. There are some good shots and some good directing. Yeah. And it is it is a well-crafted and well-made film. Mm-hmm. I think the special effects are good. Yeah. For the most part, the CGI is good because they keep it subtle. And the special effects of the Cenobites and the gore is, is good as well. I mean, I am just keep saying the word good. Nothing's brilliant and mind-blowing. But nothing's bad. Yeah, it's fine. You know, it's all right. I think it's a bit of an endurance test as a film uh, in that I start watching it and I'm interested and I'm kind of liking it. There's a few iffy things here and there. It's okay. But then it just really slow. Really, really there slow. are some slow moments. We, we noticed that very strongly when we watched it just now. Mm. There's a couple of moments where you think, oh, come on, you were just going somewhere and now you've slowed right down. It happens near the end, which is a real shame. Yeah, which is a real cardinal sin. <laughs> just before the big reveal, it really slows down in pace. Yeah, it's it just gets very, very slow there. And um, yeah, sort of tests your patience a little bit for not much reward. But it's it's fine. I yeah. don't know. I can't, <laughs> I, can't feel, I can't feel that bad against it, but I can't feel no. that good either. I enjoy watching it. I mean, I've watched this quite a few times and it's one of the ones that I could just put on and watch of an afternoon or an evening. Whereas I can't say the same for Bloodline or some of the others. Mm. Yeah, I think it, you can definitely tell with this one that you're in a sort of safer pair of hands Yeah. with the film. I don't, you know, there's not that much stuff that's jumping out at me making me go, oh God, this is awful. No, 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 not but, at all. But, um, you know, yeah. Meh. <laughs> so in general, this film is brilliantly average. <laughs> yeah. I do enjoy watching it, and I think it's good fun. And it's got some really interesting and good stuff in it. It's just a shame it didn't have more. It just needed some more quirky, interesting moments, I think. And it would have been a really good film. Mm. Yeah, I think they should have just gone a bit more down that road of... Um... The, the strange unseen world that we don't know about of people kind of getting involved with the box and stuff and I think that would have been a fantastic film mm. but hey you know right so it looks like we seem to be coming to the end of our discussion about Hellraiser Inferno before we do let's just talk about the, the Cenobites then quickly because this is I mean the important Hellraiser things are the puzzle box and the Cenobites mm-hmm. so the puzzle box we've said isn't really used that much in this film at all mm-hmm. it has been used at the beginning by this character who's been pulled apart by it, and then whoever then picked it up, solved it, and put this child's finger inside the candle. Hang on, here's a question. If it's... Whose finger is that first finger? Whose child... What child does that belong to? That first finger... That's in the real world. That's not in his hell. That's in the real world. Well, I think it's implied that it is... It is his. So it is in hell, I guess. But it could... It might not be his, because the fingerprint has been burned off. Mm, wow. Maybe it's just some random kid's finger that gets him interested and makes him pick up the box. It depends whether you whether you agree that it's the bit where he opens the box after he's slept with the hooker is where it goes unreal, or whether you. Well, I think that's. That I think you have thing... to. You have to assume that because that's when he opens the box. But he might have opened it before, and then this is all a fantasy. So when he opens it again, that is just mm. part of the fantasy. Well, maybe, but that, well, we'll never know that well. because we don't know what happened before. 
the beginning of the film. No. But no, I suppose so. And the other thing is, which I just want to say quickly, is that he goes through this whole mystery and it's the horror of of it all starting again. That's like, oh no, you know, mm. and it all begins again at the end of the film. But if he knows that he's already done it before and then he tries to kill himself, he blows his head off with a gun yeah. and then he, he starts again, that lessens the horror, does it not, in a weird way? Because yeah, it then would, he because knows, he, he knows just repeats. And you, fake. you just go through the whole investigation again and, and nothing will surprise him. I don't know. That's my take on it. Yeah, I just want to say, just for the record, I really like that. I really like the ending where it becomes like Groundhog Day and he's really reliving the same thing over and over again. I think that's really good. And it's a really good example of what a personal hell might be like. If you're going to go down that road and say that every person gets a huge universe devoted to them each, which is not what the earlier film said, but if you're going to go down that road, then this would be a good one for him. And I like the idea. I like the ending. I like the fact that it ends with him waking up again and he's going to keep doing that forever. Mm. I know it doesn't make much sense, (laughs) but I did. The first time I saw it, I didn't like it at all. I hated it, in fact. And the second time I saw it, I loved it. (laughs) And now I just kind of think it's quite good. Yeah. Meh. Once (laughs) again, meh. (laughs) But anyway, we were talking about the box. So the box has little to do with the rest of the film. It does seem to open itself again, Mm -hmm. and it could be the fact that Leviathan has chosen this person to punish. But again, this is is not what they're all about. And this is what the film seems to imply, that the Cenobites have chosen him, they're a moral compass, and they're going to punish him for his sins. Mm. Which isn't right. No. I agree with you, that isn't Mm. right at all. Mm. But that is all the box seems to be. It's just a means to summon him. Mm-hmm. to their world, yeah. to their realm, their domain, so they can then play with him. Yeah, absolutely. And the Cenobites, the Wire Twins, what do you make of them? I think they look good. Mm-hmm. Um, they're interesting. They don't get much to do in this film. They just they kind of stand around. They don't really do much. sort of stroke they, each other. None of the Cenobites talk, apart from Pinhead. They don't look to me like Cenobites. They look like a sort of new version of Cenobites, like an offshoot. I mean, they've got yeah. the same kind of leather clothes and stuff, but... They don't look the same to me, but... Um... And the Chatterer Torso is a very interesting idea. It's a quite a freaky image. But really, he can't do that much, can he? Really? No. I no. mean, you can run away from him pretty quickly, I would have thought. Yeah, they're just... <laughs> and he can't grab you and stand up. <laughs> <laughs> they're just there to kind of intimidate you, aren't they? They just kind of stand there looking at you, uh, which is what they do in the film. All they do is just stand there and sort of yeah look at you and um, be a bit freaky and so. they seem to be in this one just sort of pushing him towards pinhead yeah it's um it's a strange logic you know that pin this is what pinhead spends his time doing and he's got these new cenobites but there's no sort of explanation of where they've come from they're just servants to help him you know just to yeah. intimidate people and in that first scene the sort of dream sequence they are just there to push him towards the front door of the house where pinhead will be waiting for him yeah and later on, they just sort of chase him through a forest. Yeah, they're just there aren't until they? they meet, till he meets the Asian cowboy. <laughs> Asian cowboy, and that's it, really. Yeah, they're not really used at all. They're not. They look good. They look yeah. good. I I like them a lot better than the um, bloodline mm-hmm. Cenobites. Yeah, they're very stylish. They look interesting, but um, yeah, you know, they're just window dressing, aren't they? This whole film is just just they window are. dressing. Yeah. So in effect, to sum up. I quite like the film. You're a bit meh about it. 
And yeah, I kind of don't have any strong feelings. It certainly isn't one that I would recommend straight away to people who hadn't seen any of the films. No. It's one that if you've seen the others and you like them, you can watch this just out of curiosity one afternoon and you might quite enjoy it. I think, yeah. And I think in the canon of the films, if this one was this and you you watched it and that's fine. If the next film, they took the lessons from this... And then, you know, made these more interesting films, then then they, I would like this film a lot more because I'd be like, ah, that's what sort of changed the series and made the series kind of go off in a different direction. But um, Yeah, so the question is, in the next film that was made, did they learn from their mistakes in this one and wow. do a completely different take, a different idea? Did they? We'll have to wait until next time. Oh. So next time we're going to be doing a podcast all about Hellraiser, Hellseeker. Oh. So your homework between now and the next one is to watch Hellraiser, Hellseeker. If you haven't already. Exactly, watch it again. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen it, then I will just uh, give you a little teaser. It features a character we've not seen for a while, that of young Kirsty Cotton (gasps) from the first two films. Oh, it sounds good. Yeah. I can't wait to watch it. Mm. Well, (laughs) Well, you'll have to wait. Oh. And we will talk about it next time. So in the meantime, thanks again for listening. Do keep sending us all your feedback, which is great. It's always fun to hear from you. Hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at Hellraisercast. We've got a Facebook page. Yeah, any comments or questions or queries or putting us right on things we've said that you don't think is correct, anything like that. Yeah, we want to hear what you think about Hellraiser Inferno because we kind of think it's okay. Yeah, I kind of, you know, this discussion we've just had is just kind of an initial thoughts and feelings, really, on it. And um, It is, and it seems, yeah. I mean, this conversation, I mean, we are talking about it immediately after watching the film, and I think that has taken its toll. The film sort of meanders and is average, and we're sort of going, yeah, uh, yeah. This... And we've got this feeling now of sort of, we're not really excited about it, and we're not, in Bloodline, for example, I was really excited about the conversation we were going to have about it. Yeah. And in this one, there's not that much to talk about. And we've not got strong feelings about it either way. It's like our conversation has become like the film, isn't it? I know. If it has, then I'm sorry. Oh, no. Wait, do you think this is all going to start again in a minute? No, that was ridiculous. <laughs> um, all right, so... Hello, and welcome to the Hellraiser podcast. Hello, Phil. Hello, Peter. Good. So today, we're going to be talking about Hellraiser Inferno. Mm. Oh, no, wait, no, hang on. No. We've done that already. No, th- not that. Sorry. Okay, so everyone, thanks again for listening, and we will be with you very shortly for the next one, which will be all about Hellraiser Hellseeker. Looking forward to it. Me too. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Peter. See you soon. Bye. Hello, and welcome to the Hellraiser podcast. Hello, Phil. Hello, Peter. Good. So today, we're going to be talking about Hellraiser Inferno.